Tired of searching dozens of websites for local sports events? Visit www.sportcalgary.ca and find hundreds of local events. Everything from community gatherings to summer camps to tournaments. And of course, we will keep you updated when things return to normal, when these things are going to be rescheduled. That's what Sport Calgary is there to do. Hey kids, how you holding up? How you doing? It's been a while, hasn't it? I'm your old pal Rob Kerr uh, from Sport Calgary. I'm on the board. I'm board of directors. Yeah. Love volunteering. This is a great... Uh, you ever got some time? Just go to the Sport Calgary website and check around. Like, Katrina Maidon is, is in charge, and Mary Moran, you know Mary Moran, your friend Mary Moran, she's the, the chair of the board. We got all kinds of crackerjack, great, awesome people at Sport Calgary. Uh, so if you ever get a chance, make sure you tour the website, find out what we're all about, and get involved. We'd love to have you. Uh, this is an original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Full disclosure, <laughs> if you've been listening to these from the start, you know that I'm about to tell you, yes, you know, sing along at home, folks, because you know the words, as a friend of mine. Very pleased. Uh, Calgary's a great spot for Olympic athletes. It's a great spot for uh, international athletes, but it's also a great spot for coaches. Um, and not only coaches in our city, but coaches who call Calgary home and coach elsewhere, but continue to come back. Uh, it, we've got huge alumni in hockey and football around here. Lots of good, honest, decent, hardworking Albertan sports people call Calgary home, but ply their trade in all corners of the earth. And today, a hockey coach who does just that. I got to know him a long, long time ago when he worked for Hockey Canada. Um, we crossed paths there. We would reconnect in 2003 when I came back to the city of Calgary to work and was going to cover the Calgary Flames. And I met my pal Rob Cookson, who happened to be an assistant coach with the Calgary Flames. Well, lo and behold, the team would go on that crazy run in 2004. Rob would coach here for many years. He would move on. Uh, he would go coach in Europe. He would come back to the NHL as a coach with the Ottawa Senators. And this past winter, returned to the Swiss League to coach. So there's some great stories in there. Um, but Rob is really, to me, very interesting because he, like a lot of people in the coaching business, it's in their blood. It's, it's absolutely in their blood. Um, he's got to do it. He wants to do it. He needs to do it. So he does it. Uh, great conversation about um, hockey over in Europe. Great conversation about 2004 and some of the stories that came out of that. But also a good conversation about why. Why keep coaching? Why chase that dream? Uh, I think you're going to find that it's very similar to the athletes, but we'll let Rob explain that. Uh, by the way, Sport Calgary conducts research into sports issues in our city. Did you know the gross municipal amateur sport product in Calgary is over $1.2 billion per year? Visit www.sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Rob Cookson, currently coaching in Switzerland, former Flames coach. He's our guest today on the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Let's start here. How how are you holding up? Are you okay? Do we do you need anything? Can I get you anything? Are you okay? Uh, no, I'm fine right now. I've got uh, till Saturday, which is uh, tomorrow, to finish up my isolation after coming back from Europe, and uh, then I'm uh, out of my uh, niece's small apartment and back to my house. So I think I've got enough food to last me till tomorrow. And uh, 
And I'm also excited because, you know, since everybody's in isolation now, there's some great uh, episodes coming back on uh, new seasons of uh, on Netflix. So that's even more uh, compelling to stay at home now. So you're, what are you binging? Well, I could probably do Ozark in about two days. Okay. The new uh, Ozark. And then I think uh, Heist, Money Heist is coming back on the new episodes early in April. So... <laughs> Is Not to make light of anything, because obviously this is a very serious situation, and I do want to kind of morph into your what you've been doing over the winter, but is, is there a little bit of an element to a guy who's a North American coach over in Europe to what's going on now? Um, I'm sure you could get out a little bit more, but in terms of the entertainment and things like that, did you rely on technology and, and Netflix and things like that to kind of stay connected to pulp culture? Well, you know, like when I first went to Europe uh – Back in 2011, uh, you know, we did use, and you, we, you talked about Skype. We use Skype. And now um, Skype has become uh, still usable. And uh, there's so many other options to uh, communicate around the world. And, uh, you know, now with, uh, you know, the use of Twitter and uh, the use of um, all your different uh, apps, you you don't even know you're out of the country, really. I mean, my I coached with uh, this year. I coached with uh, Paul DiPietro, the former player who played for the Habs when they won when the Cup in '93. And he uh, he has this little machine that he allows him to have all of uh, Sportsnet, Sports TSN, everything. And so he is so he's further up to date on what's happening in North America than than probably most people in North America with respect to the information that goes on in the sporting world and that sort of thing. So it's such a small world now in terms of the communication, and maybe that's what's what's uh, obviously created a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now is because the world is so small, and uh, before you know it, something goes around the world relatively quickly. Rob, tell us a little bit about your, your coaching adventure this year. Um, you ended up in the Swiss League uh, but you you didn't end up until when? About halfway through the season? I ended up, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, after uh, unsuccessful attempts to get back into the National Hockey League, it was, um, it was uh, an opportunity that uh, I feel that, uh, you know, it came about uh, largely through uh, uh, my trip to Europe in October. I went with the NHL and did the Global Series, of which um, – Chicago opened the season as did Philadelphia in the in um, Prague, and so going along, going in conjunction with that was the coaches association and the NHL, of which uh, coaching seminars were done in uh, Berlin, Lausanne, and uh, then back in Prague, and and uh, we saw Philadelphia play uh, the uh, Swiss team in Lausanne, and then we moved over to. Um, Prague and did another coaching seminar and they opened the season there. And then after that, I went back to, uh, I went back to the Swiss league and did a little networking and met with some GMs and, and saw some friends that I hadn't seen in Zurich. And one of the, uh, one of the managers I met was, uh, which is, you know, will be very familiar with uh, people around this part of the world was uh, Nat Dominicelli, sure. who is the uh, manager in Lugano now. And Matt, uh, after he left the NHL, went to the Swiss league, uh, became a, uh, 
Swiss citizen, played in the Olympics for Switzerland, I believe in um, in Vancouver, and um, and then um, went back. You know, obviously stayed in uh, in Switzerland, finished his career there. Uh, married a gal from uh, the Ticino area, which is the Italian area of, of Switzerland, and then started to work down there as a uh, player agent. And then uh, last year took over the, uh, the managerial job with the uh, hockey club Lugano. And so I met with him in October and uh, just to network. And then um, as things uh, turned out, it was a, a good uh, networking uh opportunity for me because uh, he changed coaches in uh, in about early December mid-December and uh, ended up there coaching in uh, Lugano for the remainder of the season up until uh, up until we finished uh, the season and then uh, and then we shut it and then the league shut down obviously so it was a good uh, we had uh, I got over there we had 18 games left 18 games and we needed to get uh, over there. It's the three point system. So we went from uh, 11 points back uh, out of the playoffs and uh, the very last game of the season, we squeezed into eighth place. So it was a good, uh, a good run for us. And it boded, you know, it boded well for us as a coaching staff. Not your first time over in Switzerland, you and uh, Mark Crawford took over the Zurich Lions, correct, after Bob Hartley came back to North America to coach the Flames. Do I have the timeline correct? Yes, timeline is very correct. We went over there in 11-12, 11, 11, so 2011-2012, and I think that was at the same time of the, um, the uh, shortened uh, season here. And uh, we ended up spending four years over there, and it was uh, it was really a really good, uh, a terrific four years in Zurich. It was a, it's a great organization, and uh, you know the year before Bob was there with uh, Jacques Cloutier and they had won the uh, the league. So it was um, it was uh, a big uh, challenge for us to keep the team uh, afloat because usually what happens over there is, and maybe not so different here, but they get uh, over there they get a little comfortable after they've won, and it's a it's a hard push to get them back in, and we. We pushed them back in, and and we at the same time still tried to learn the league, and uh, it was a um, it's a big challenge, but it was a, a real fun challenge. And then the next year we won it, so it didn't take us long. And we had a good we had a good player, so it was uh, wasn't like we were doing anything magical. We just you know we had the right combination of uh, imports and uh, and Swiss players who were great leaders and uh, great competitors. What what is it about that league? So f- help us hockey fans understand it. From what I gather, I mean Swiss hockey has has taken great steps from being a you know kind of an also ran and up relegated all the time in the world championships to now. I mean they're winning medals. They're a powerhouse. They 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 could be at any moment a threat for a silver, maybe even a gold in the world championships. Where would you put that league in comparison to other European leagues? Well, I would say it's probably the uh, when you when you put all the uh, factors into into the uh, equation, it is uh, probably the second best league in maybe the third best league in the world. Um, you know, I I would say that the KHL has has more superior talent overall. 
but as far as the combination of um, living style and uh, and the game and uh, the uh, you know the travel that sort of thing, it would be the second best league other than the NHL, only because you know you're you're given a lot of resources to get the job done, and uh, you, it's a very comfortable uh, lifestyle in terms of you know where you live and what you do. So it's not you know. So you have to take those things into the equation when you move, because um, if you're moving to Russia, it's a it's a lot different than moving to uh, to Switzerland. Switzerland is a very comfortable uh, lifestyle. It's got some, you know, adjustment adjustments obviously that you have to get used to. But uh, the hockey is uh, is very good, and uh, the development focus is very good because obviously it, um, you know, with a small number of players similar to countries like finland and sweden you have the uh you have uh in switzerland you have the resources to get the job done and uh and by resources i mean they're they, you know they they'll pay for the um for people to come in or they'll pay for them themselves to be developed in a way that uh, de- develops their players and so they're they're good at that and they're very organized in that that respect and the league itself has done a great job, I think, at, uh, I think of developing their players because of the, uh, you know, unlike the uh, German league, which, you know, there's a requirement and, and make it successful. They've got to bring in more import players to play on each team. In the, in the Swiss league, they only allow four imports. And the four imports have to be good enough that they, you know, they produce, that they, they uh, score, that they put up points. And... Um, and that's what they're, uh, you know, usually that's what the requirement is for those imports coming in. And so all of that combined, I think, make for a, a good league and a, and a competitive league. And uh, at any one point in time, you know, the top eight teams are very competitive with, uh, you know, the second tier uh, four teams of a 12-team league are, are very competitive as well. So, you know, it's not like you're walking over teams all the time that are not making the playoffs at any one point in time, you can lose to those teams, which, which really hurt you down the road. So this is a, a Calgary based podcast. We tend to, and we probably will talk a little flames in our conversation a little while, but sure. you have a bit of a Maple Leaf connection to your time over in Switzerland too, because um, you guys were the team of choice for an 18 year old Austin Matthews, right? Yes, we had Austin. That was, uh, and that was, um, I think, as a result of um, Mark's uh, uh, relationship with uh, with Pat Brisson at the time, who was um, who was Austin's uh, uh, agent. And uh, that year, uh, the year was uh, uh, thirteen fourteen. No, sorry, it was fifteen sixteen. Um, um, I, I can't remember now what year it was. It was the it was our last year, I think. So it would have been Austin's draft year. I think it was sixteen seventeen. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah, because then yeah, you guys so would we'll get it. But you guys would come over to Ottawa after that. Yeah. So it was um, it was uh, the uh, anyways. It was the year of Austin's draft. Let's put it that way, and then we can get on with the story. <laughs> and uh, so he so he. Um, so they they needed a place for Austin to play because he I guess at the time he he had the option he could go play major junior, and I don't think they really liked that idea. His uh, 
his parents and his agent and or he could go to university and i don't think he wanted to go that route and uh they had come over and he had played for the uh, u.s team at the under 18 world 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 championships which were in switzerland at the time and so we uh mark had met with uh pat Brisson and talked to him about the option and the, the zerk lines had uh looked at that uh as a, a viable option for a young player to come over as an import uh they weren't 100 percent sold on the idea but i think that they saw the advantages of of a young player coming over and what could what that could do to their program and i think it was really good overall so he came in as a as a 17 year old and um Right away, um, you could see that he was going to be really good for us that year, but he couldn't play for us <laughs> because he wasn't old enough at the time. <laughs> so he had to he had to wait. Uh, at that time, we were playing in the Champions League. So if you can believe it or not, you you start playing the Champions League in August, which is which has always been something difficult for not only Mark but myself to get used to. You know, once you're used to the NHL schedule, where you're right, you know, you're not really having to go to work till sep- September. So, anyways, uh, we were playing in. Um, we were playing in. Uh, that was a, it's a funny story, anyways. But we were playing in uh, Berlin in the Champions League, and uh, he couldn't play. Austin couldn't play, so he uh, he. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking about. Maybe he thought that he was just going to have the weekend off because he wasn't playing. But we also had a couple practices, so he, he should. You know, and over there it's a little different than it is in North America where you're. And even where he was playing at the U.S. Development Program, they probably looked after his gear pretty good and made sure that it was with him. Uh, he didn't bring his gear all the way to Berlin. And uh, when he got there and we skated, I said, well, where's your gear? He says, well, I wasn't playing, so I didn't bring my gear. And I go, okay. <laughs> then you remember that he was only 17 at the time. So obviously, you know, he may have needed a little bit of a reminder in that sense. But uh, <laughs> he had a good, he had a really good year. And I think he uh, it allowed him to mature a lot more. And more than that, I think it was his mom spent the whole season over there and lived with him. And um, and I think that was good because he had uh, spent probably uh, a year away from his uh, his dad and uh, and his mom. And it was good for one year for him to to have his um, mom Emma there. And uh, and then uh, Brian was back and forth. Uh, due to his work commitments in North America. So, yeah, he was good. And uh, we didn't win with him, mind you. Uh, we lost out in the first round. But um, I think that uh, overall it gave the Swiss League a little bit more credibility in the eyes of the National Hockey League. And um, it gave, you know, Zurich an opportunity to, you know, to showcase their, their program, which I think was good as well. Rob, let's fast forward a little bit because, you know, the Swiss League is just an example of things happen over there. This spring, for many of us in North America, you know, we'd heard about, you know, a health issue and, and a virus in China, and, and it was starting to have impact. And it was really the, the Swiss uh, League that you were in was the first pro league in the world, I believe, at least the one that we were aware of, to, to take measures. Were you part of the games that were played with no fans? We played uh, our last two games without fans. So, as you can imagine, it's somewhat awkward to uh, to play a game without fans. And uh, and especially in, in Europe, because unlike in North America, where the fans 
uh, at moments during the game become can become very loud and, and very boisterous, uh, especially in the playoffs. There is a continual buzz and noise that goes on right from the uh, when the fans show up at the rink to when they leave. And, uh, you know, the decibel level is uh, is very loud and uh, to a point where when you're on the bench, you almost have to yell constantly at the players uh, to, in order to communicate to them. And so all of a sudden going from that type of facility and that type of uh, arrangement to a building that's uh, deadly quiet, uh, it's very uh, – for me, it was all right. I, I didn't mind it because once the game started, you kind of forget about, you know, the noise and also the uh, the non-noise. So it was it was kind of interesting that way. But uh, I think the players probably uh, the players probably missed it a little bit, mind you. The, the funny parts of everything were the fact that you know, when a couple times when uh, the other team had a TV timeout or not a TV timeout, but a a, um, a timeout. You could hear what the other coach was saying fairly clearly, you know, <laughs> which was kind of awkward. <laughs> the referees, I, I mean, they, they don't hear you anyway, so you couldn't argue or couldn't get their attention. So, but it was, uh, it was, uh, actually we played three games because we played an exhibition game, uh, as a, as a lead into the playoffs that we thought we were going to play. And, uh, and that one was really that was the, the sad part of the season was playing an exhibition game with nobody in the stands. So you need the fans yeah, and you need that environment. And uh, it just wasn't the same when it comes right down to it, what, but it was interesting. I don't, wouldn't want to do that again though. No. And, and I think we were all kind of getting prepared for that. I think that's what we were getting. We thought we were going to see in North America. Did you, did, yeah. they, did they play music? Did they do any of the entertainment components or anything like that? Or, you had to ask that question, didn't you? I, I, lots of times during the game, I can't remember even hearing the uh, the music or the announcer, but it seems to me that uh, they didn't. Okay. No, they didn't. Well, no. what was interesting, I, I don't know if you saw, there was some highlight. The KHL was essentially the last hockey league to shut down, and the yeah. KHL played playoff games without fans, but they still had the cheerleaders, which I, I just <laughs> it, it didn't make any sense to me. Makes no sense. Makes no. The funny sense. part about the games, though, the funny part about the games with no no people, is that every once in a while you'd look up and there'd be somebody sitting in the stands, in the middle of the stands, and you're going, well, "Who is that guy? What's he doing over there?" And, uh, <laughs> they became distracting. They became distracting. Yeah. Um, for you, what refereeing tell me about wasn't the... any better, by the way. What's that? The refereeing wasn't any better. No, no. I, I was going to say, some things never change, Rob, from no. a coaching standpoint. Tell me a little bit about your coaching journey. I mean, here we are talking about your most recent stop, but, you know, I mentioned the Colorado or uh, the Ottawa Senators. You've been with the Calgary Flames. You've been with the Philadelphia Flyers. You've been with Team Canada. When did you get bit by the coaching bug? Uh, you know what? I, I think that... Um... You have to, I have to give credit, to, and, and, uh, and, and rightly so, to some people that um, have always got a lot of credit, and, and they deserve a lot of credit. And that was um, back in the, uh, in the um, mid to, uh, about the mid to early 80s, uh, it would have been, uh, I would say, around uh, 80, 84 to 86, uh, I started working for Hockey Alberta. At the time, it was the Alberta Amateur Hockey Association. And uh, so I was uh, going to the University of uh, 
Alberta, and in the summertime, I worked with the uh, Alberta Amateur Hockey Association in the summer. So the two summers, and then and then following that, and then following that, I took a full time job with them. But in the course of the summer times, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Ray Bennett, whom uh, you might know or you should well, know. Well, he's been in any he's been around NHL coaching staffs for years. Yes, so he's now the assistant coach in Colorado. So him and I and he was a full-time employee, so him and I were uh, responsible for for putting together the under 17 program uh and also the um and in the, in the uh late, latter part of the summer we'd start working on the coaching program, but the under 17 program at that time was a uh was a uh, process that uh, was was regional, started provincial, and then it went to regional. So you brought players in from Alberta, then you combined the Alberta players with the BC players to to form what was called uh, 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 it was called the uh, uh, Team Pacific. Yeah, and then uh, so at that at, at those summer camps, we would invite uh, you know coaches such as. Uh, at the time, coaches such as uh, George Kingston, uh, uh, Ken Hitchcock, uh, Tom Rennie was involved, uh, Perry Pern, um, and Dave King uh, was involved only from a leadership standpoint. But right. you know, your interaction around those people was was fantastic. And so, you know, I started to get interested in, and I always played the game. Obviously, everybody's played the game, but I get interested in the coaching aspects because I was inundated with that on a regular basis not only you know uh, from a you know administrative standpoint from just from an observation standpoint so that uh, kind of spurred my interest and uh and probably forgetting a lot of other people that were involved in that as well you know the likes of wayne fleming and um at the time our technical director was uh was a fellow by the name of Rick, Rick Plutnik who uh, went on to coach the women's sure. one of the first uh, women's nationals teams in uh, Canada. So that kind of that combined with the fact that I later in the early '90s worked with Hockey Canada and then started working with the national team programs and and then at that time, you know, I started to support uh, the uh, junior team and uh, Olympic team both in '98 and uh, in 1994. Um, when I was an employee with Hockey Canada and in all the world juniors events, the world championships, those types of things, I got, you know, I got a, a, a good reputation obviously. And then I did a lot of networking and I, and I started to use more video than, than probably had been done in the past to support the coaches. And then you, you start to network and you, you get, you know, some confidence in what you can do. And then you, you know, you gradually see an opportunity to move in and, and become more of a involved, uh, individual from a coaching standpoint and so unlike uh playing it was more of a you know a great um apprenticeship uh with a lot of great people uh, that i would take information from and and i think that has helped me through the years because you can you know obviously you can fall back on some sort of foundation as far as you know what you've learned and and what experiences you have and i i think experiences from a coaching perspective the experience is such a, a great tool to have and you can't replace the experience that's uh, that you get as you move through uh, your coaching uh, uh, career. Um, it's very difficult, even from a young coaching perspective, to have experience if you if you don't put in the time. And I think that's the one 
that's the one message out there that I would say that experience is so so uh, invaluable when you when you work your way through and, and, and get to a higher level. Where where did technology? You know, I've asked you where coaching came in, but where did technology come in for you? Because you you know early parts of your coaching career, you were very much uh, connected to technology, right? And video in game in the game. Uh, you know, it's funny you should say that because uh, when I first well, when I first started, um, when I went back to Hockey Canada in 1990, uh, the Olympics were were the back-to-back uh, uh, events, the Winter Olympics, because they were trying to separate the... Oh, 92-94. Uh, so, 92-94. So yeah. So, I, I worked a little bit with Dave uh, and Wayne Fleming and, and at the time, Terry Crisp, and, and um, you know, with the national team in 92, but not really. At that point in time, we were building educational videos. We had an edit suite, uh, probably right where you sit. Uh, <laughs> the dome. Your, at the dome. Yeah. Exactly, because we were uh, we were back in the back there, and uh, so we were we were at the uh, the saddle dome for uh, I think until 1994. But it was it was a great environment there because uh, you know it was like a it was like a laboratory. We had all we invited coaches from Europe over there, and, and uh, anyways, we had this uh, we had this edit suite that we could put together um, um, educational material. And at that time, it was all uh, it was based on VHS tapes, and uh, there was no digital this, digital that. It was it was all on tapes, and so we uh, we did a great job of archiving uh, Olympic footage, and we take that Olympic footage from at that time it would have been you know, 88 Olympics and, uh, and probably not earlier because even, even then the, uh, technology and the, the ability to archive material was very difficult. Um, and, and if you did archive it, 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 it was in the giant film version, which was even more, uh, I don't think people today understand what film is all about because, um, you know, everything comes in a digital realm, which right. makes it so easy to, to move and to, transfer and to copy and, and anything so long story short that that air was interesting but you know the last i would say five or six years it has become uh it, it's become exponential in the amount of information you can you can uh, access and and really all of that uh today what you can do today is is just uh, unbelievable in terms of getting information right away and and what it's done is it made it's made the coaching world much more difficult only in the sense that you have so much more information and it actually uh, i think it actually makes it a, a more difficult and a longer uh uh, uh it creates a, a, a larger workload for the coach because it at any moment in now you're looking you're looking at the national hockey league you can ask your video coach well can i look at all the uh goals that were scored in the league last night yeah and, and within a snap of the finger you can have that right at your fingertips or all the penalty kills uh that were by one team in the last uh, 12 games and uh, you can have that in an instant but it still requires the expertise of a coach to look at the information and put it into some sort of usable and, and shortened chunk down version to either teach or to, uh, you know, prepare yourself with. And that's where the time comes in. 
it's uh, it's the the amount of information out there is is it's so so large, and the amount of time it takes to chunk it down into a one minute segment if you're if you're teaching is that's where it takes the time. And uh, again, it's gone in the short span, probably from about '94 to 2020, and, and what's that? 20, 20 odd years. Yep. Uh, to a level that uh, that is where it is today, and today it's just it's unbelievable how you can access so much information so quick. And now with analytics coming on board, and the uh, the tie-in between the two, and and now in the next. Uh, Four or five years with the uh, with the, the chip pucks and the jerseys that are uh, microchipped, like what's going to be accessible to not only the fan but to the coaches. You know, it, it's just again, it's going to take another leap in terms of the ability to, t- to teach and also uh, you know gather information, which is what coaching is all about. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm sure some will view it as a, a positive. I'm not sure it is in the sense, and I, I just really want to go back and recognize something you touched on. I don't know how many people in Calgary remember or know that the Western Center of Excellence, I believe, was that what it was called? Um, it was called the uh, Western Center of Excellence because yeah. they, uh, or the Center, actually the Center of Excellence because we, uh, we uh, at the time, we uh, we'd had branches that That's moved right. out and tried to work with all the National Hockey League teams. So that there was the there was one in uh, Vancouver. Yeah, and it was uh, Rod Brathwaite that uh, I think he's still there. But that was where one of the areas that it started. And there was one in Toronto, and uh, then there was one in Montreal as well. And it was so it, it was, was fantastic. A, uh, it was a Hockey yeah, Canada initiative. Coaches could yeah. come in. You had the little bays. You could come in. Yeah. You could borrow videotapes and. You know, what I took away from that was the ability to sit and watch all of these Dave King presentations from all the years. And to this day, I remember sitting in there watching Dave King talk about the exact problems that we have in the game right now. The pyramiding, <laughs> losing kids. And, you yeah. know, he was the, you know, we talk about analytics. Dave King was the first guy to ever talk about how much the puck was on Wayne Gretzky's stick as opposed to how much it was on other player sticks and, and how much you had it in practice, those types of things. And oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a little worried that we get too much technology too much data that we're going to get away from the theories and and the the human components of this well you, you know what i i gotta tell you just a quick story here when i went to uh, lugano in uh, in um in the winter time uh one of the more exciting uh aspects of my decision at the time was the fact that uh nat had talked to uh, dave king about going over there and finishing the season as the head coach and uh, when I found that out, and then, and then consequently, I talked to Dave about it. Uh, he was in the in the midst of trying to make up his decision about going over there. And uh, as it turned out, it was it would it would have been just too difficult for him at the time because he was, you know, as you know, he made such large hockey commitments all his life, and he has two grandchildren here that were in Calgary, and he just got to Calgary. He was going to spend Christmas with them, and and he didn't feel that he that he could you know, leave and, uh, and not have that opportunity to spend Christmas with his grandchildren. But that was one of the, uh, would have been one of the highlights of my, uh, my oh, uh, coaching sure. career was to do that. Um, and you're right that the presentations, I still, and it's funny you should say that about the presentations. When I left, I, I, uh, I borrowed some VHS tapes, some extra copies and took them home with me. And in my garage, I still have some of those old VHS, uh, 
presentations from Dave King, from Wayne Fleming. I actually have one from Brad McCrimmon when he did a, a presentation out at in uh, at the Saskatchewan uh, Level Four Coaching Seminar, uh, and uh, a, a lot of different uh, uh, you know icons in, as far as coaching in Canada that uh, have really you know created the fu- uh, the foundation of coaching today, and, and not only in Canada but in the world. Sport Calgary members have access to resources such as marketing on social media, blog entries, features, and placement on the events listing. Become a member. It's easy and free. Visit www.sportcalgary.ca slash members with Rob Cookson. You have been front and center for some pretty historic um, hockey moments, both globally and locally. Um, You were in Nagano for 98, correct? I was in Nagano from 98, and actually that's funny. Today I was watching a an interview with uh, Ron McLean, and he had uh, he had uh, there was on there was Gretzky, Messier, Bobby Orr, and um, uh, Mario, and uh, that was one of the questions that came up was the fact that uh, that uh, at the time the management group uh, chose not to take Messier in 1998 uh, to the Olympic Games, and uh, so it was interesting to hear Wayne's. Uh, um, comment on that and uh, you know about the, the leadership the importance of leadership and and how important Messi you know may have been as an addition to that uh, that team and uh, and I do recall back then that uh, you know they were they were players and Wayne was the same they were players that were entering the, the twilight of their careers and uh, you know it was the first go around for the National Hockey League in terms of the um, the selection process and the uh, the event itself so you know I, as you can tell in the events that happened after the uh, the 98 Olympics in the in the following um, Olympic Games they, they they struck it right on on I think three or three of the four occasions so they obviously they 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 learned tremendously from the 98 experience but um, that was a great experience, and uh, you know there was a lots of uh, things that we had to, as an organization, as a as a, um, a governing body in Hockey Canada, they had to iron out and work through. It wasn't, uh, you know, it was something that had never been done before, uh, as far as the Olympics with NHL players. So there was a lots of there was a lot of um, you know small logistical things that uh, the players weren't used to, uh, namely the village and and the uh, the event itself. Um, and also, uh, you know, the uh, the Olympic uh, uh, the Olympic site and the and the whole Olympic ideals had to be prepared for with NHL players coming over. And I remember, I remember Gretzky when he got to the uh, Olympic Village and when he made his way through uh, Japan. I mean, the fans and the uh, and the media almost crushed him. I mean, we weren't we weren't hundred percent prepared for the amount of interest that Gretzky and his and his wife at the time when they were traveling, what they what they experienced, it was unbelievable. And so all of those things were such a a new, uh, they, you know, they were all new for everybody. Nobody nobody had envisioned that would happen. So I want to just, I mean, we of course it, it's one of the great all time hockey debates and all that. I won't put you in the middle of it, but to be part of, and I know two thousand and two is more important for Canadians. But to have the best in the world come back in 98, to to have, 
you know, this great, we had seen a World Cup and there had been the Canada Cups, but this was truly special. Um, what was, how would you describe the caliber of hockey at that time, Rob? Well, that, um, if you look at the, uh, that group of players and, uh, you know, the year before that in 1997, we had won the, uh, the world championships and, uh, and, uh, the head coach at the time was Andy Murray. And then there was myself, uh, Mike Johnston and, uh, Wayne Cashman. And, uh, and then the following year, and then in 1996, they had the, um, um, they had, uh, the, uh, world cup, US Canada world cup. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and Mark, uh, Crawford was one of the assistant coaches on that team along with Andy Murray. And so that was the coaching staff was then selected. And, uh, obviously, uh, Mark, uh, became the head coach. And then there was Andy Murray and, uh, Wayne Cashman, Mike Johnson, and my, myself as a, as a coaching staff. And, um, but, you know, to compile and then obviously the management management group was, uh, was Bobby Clark and Bob Ganey and Pierre Gauthier and, uh, and Bob Nicholson. And that comprised the, uh, the management group. And, and, uh, and really we had a tremendous team. I mean, it, it, in those events, it, it, uh, it comes down to one game and, uh, it comes down to uh, really for our game. It was, uh, is, was, was uh, a goalie that was at, at the peak of his career in Dominic Hasek. Yeah. Uh, when we got to the, uh, the quarterfinal, to the, um, semifinals. And, um, and he was, uh, you know, he was right in the midst of his, uh, you know, his, his peak as far as a player. And, uh, and I do recall in that game, like that was a great, it was a great game. And, uh, it, we dominated the overtime and I think we, uh, we, I think they may have had one shot on that in the overtime. We had uh, at least 10 and, uh, and we did, you know, I thought we really outplayed in the course of the game, but the goaltender was unbelievable. And that's, that's sometimes all it takes is, uh, is a goalie that's hot at that time. And we had Patrick Waugh and he was as equal, um, you know, but that's obviously in those tournaments, bounces are, are critical and, uh, and momentum and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you can look back and second guess everything about that event, uh, and and you know you can do inquiries that sort of thing. Where I thought we really probably could have uh, been, I thought maybe where we could have been a little different was was in the game against Finland. And I don't think the players at that time recognized the importance of at least winning a medal in the uh, in the Olympics. You know, at that point in time, it was it was gold or nothing. And, uh, you know, bronze medal would have looked obviously pretty good for some of those players who never got an opportunity to represent Canada in the Olympics again after, you know, in 98. And, uh, and it's, we probably, and, and everybody can take responsibility for not getting the group ready to play and be successful against a Finnish team who uh, at the time had some great players as well. But, um, overall, you know, it was, it was a, uh, a great, opportunity for those players it was a great experience and you know you can look back and say you know it wasn't successful but it was successful because it really it formed a, a foundation of where we had to get to and where the organization in hockey canada had to get to you know for the the following olympics of which they did very well 
um, with the exception of the one in uh, Italy in, uh, I think, 2006. So uh, coming out of that, and again, this is a podcast based on Calgary. Hockey Canada is based in Calgary. One of the mm-hmm. things, and you would have been transitioning, right? Because after that, you would move on to the Philadelphia Flyers. But you would have been aware of what we did as a nation in 1999. That was the Open Ice Summit, right? That was a direct result of um, not winning gold in yeah. in Nagano. What what yeah. do you now through the you know through the lens of of time? I mean, that's 21 years ago, Rob. What what do you? How did that impact the game? Well, I think that I think. Uh, with with all of those um, um, with all of those uh, introspective uh, examinations of your game, I, I think it's all healthy, and it should be done more often. It should be a, it should be a, you know every four or five year event where you look at your what you're doing as a country uh, when it comes to the game of hockey or any other sport. But you should look and you should try to try to bring enough people into the equation. They can, you know, unbiasedly look at the product, unbiasedly look at the development. And uh, I think what it really allowed Hockey Canada to, to do was to self, uh, to provide a self-analysis, a self-evaluation of, of what they were doing and, and their programs. And I think that's critical. You always have to, you know, for for success to move forward, whether you're coaching a team or you're, or you're developing um, players or you're, you know, responsible for uh, for the development of the game in a in a in a country it's important to uh, you know to provide that self-evaluation and I think that's what they did and they had to they had to look at you know why weren't we successful and, and probably the impetus of all of that was was the Olympics uh, and, it, and it brought up you know brought uh, administrators together it brought coaches together uh, brought uh, players together and it probably uh, you know we had a better idea of what we needed to do and what the organization needed to do moving forward. So I have never looked back at the, um, at the results. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, because I left in, in, uh, in 98 from hockey Canada, but I'm sure that if you look back at some of the, uh, the notes that, and the information and the ideas that were gathered from that, um, from that summit, I'm sure that a lot of them are still have been put in place and are still being used or they've been, uh, the cornerstone of a, of a better and, and uh, you know, a, a more uh, uh, refined uh, approach to the game. You would spend some time in Philadelphia, but you would find your way back home, as it were. You joined the Calgary Flames. Uh, Daryl Sutter takes over the team in 2002-2003 season. The next season, of course, Mika Kiprasov comes to Calgary you are part of this incredible run, uh, the Red Mile, everything that goes into Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final. How do you how do you look back on that? How do you remember that that season, Rob? Yeah, I, I, yeah it was funny because you know when you're sitting here in self isolation and and you're not uh, doing a lot of work at the moment, you uh, I, I, it's given me a great opportunity to go back and uh, and really look back at uh, at those events. And to listen to people talk, and uh, uh, I listened to some of the players talk. Uh, I listened to uh, Craig Conroy talk the other day of his experience when we when we had uh, Christoph Oloa and uh, and Chris Simon on the team, and how and how that helped uh, Jerome and uh, and Craig play as uh, 
you know, it opened up ice for them with with those types of players at, in that stage of the uh, NHL. And you listen to, uh, uh, you know, I listened to or I read some of the uh, the book on uh, Steve Monador. Yeah. And uh, especially the information when he was starting in Calgary and him and Rhett Warner developed such a fondness uh, and a friendship. And, uh, you, you know, you sometimes forget uh, the importance of how close a group has to be to have success. And, uh, and it was really evident with that season, with that group, uh, how, how tight they were as a, as a group. And, uh, um, you know, that the big difference uh, in, uh, in the success of the team in terms of the on ice success was when we got Mika in November. Uh, and uh, I remember, I still remember that first game he played and I go, wow, he was just unbelievable. Montreal 2-1 win. Yeah. And um, and after that, you know, he just, we went on a roll there. And we won, uh, I think, uh, as I recall, when we read, uh, when I read the other day, we, they went, we won 14 games uh, with either wins or, or very close games. And, um, you know, that how good we were in the playoffs, which was really, uh, I was really impressed with that looking back and, and the games and the teams we beat, you know, with the Detroit team at the time, if you look at their lineup was, was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, how hard we worked And that. I remember, still remember, I, and I tell people, you know, those are the experiences you get. I, I tell, uh, when I'm in different situations, I say, you can never have enough defensemen <laughs> on the team. And I remember that we played Brennan Evans yep. in game, uh, three, three, Game three? Yeah. We played Brandon Evans in game three, played over six minutes of ice time, and he had never played an NHL game and uh, played very few NHL games after that. And uh, we needed him to play, and he played. And uh, that year we went through, or that playoff series, I mean, we lost Goche early. Uh, we lost uh, Tony Lidman for extended periods of time. Uh we lost, um, who did we lose as well besides that? I don't know if we lost anybody else, but, you know, we, we ended up using well, about eight or nine We didn't have Denny Goche, right? Yeah, we didn't have Denny, and we didn't have, uh, Lidman had a concussion. Tony came back at the end. Yeah, he came back at the end. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there was, I'm, uh, it just, it was crazy. You know, and we talked about this with Peter Marr when he did the podcast. You know, it's crazy that, People think Mike Commodore was this, you know, flame legend who played two or three hundred. Mike Commodore played eighteen <laughs> regular season games for the yeah. Calgary Flames, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and and that was, you know, God bless, God rest his soul, and I miss him every single day. Steve Monador, there was mm-hmm. a kid that made the his goal, his beaver tail slap on the yeah. ice in overtime <laughs> in San Jose. I can see it just right in front of me, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was and those all those little uh, anecdotes and uh, and and uh, and human performances by by players was was uh, uh, such a wonderful uh, experience and uh, and I still you know like Jerome was unbelievable like yeah. the, the difference between Jerome and the regular season and uh, when the when the games got tighter and more physical uh, he was he was so far so superior in a lot of ways on the ice as a player. And, uh, you know, we had often complained 
we we had often laughed and complain about uh, a bit about uh, Jerome's back checking efforts during the regular season, but when the playoffs started, I mean he was a machine. Yeah, he was up and down the ice, and he was he was physical, and he was finish he was finishing at the net, and and uh, like he it was he was a possessed player that year, and uh, and he he defended the teams. You know he fought and and uh, he did a number of things that were that were uh, extraordinary as a player. And that's, you know, those are the memories you remember, just the the individual efforts, but also, you know, the team, how close the team was at the time. I, I just, and, I always think that that was an example, and I'm not sure it would ever happen in the NHL as it's constructed today, but that mm-hmm. was a masterful job of player personnel. That was a masterful job of coaching. And then it was just a bunch of guys who loved each other. You know, a little yeah. pick up of Marcus Nielsen or Simon or whoever, yeah. Mika Kippersoff. But on the same token, you know, you, you know, Sean Donovan gave you, uh, you know, yeoman service throughout the regular season. It was just uh, an incredible voyage to be part of, right? Yeah, you just made me think of something when you mentioned that. Uh, that line probably, you know, uh, uh, that that probably what really hurt us from winning uh, the. Um, Winning the Stanley Cup that year was uh, was losing Sean in uh, I think it would have been game uh, uh, might have been game three. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I can't remember now. Well, he tried to come back in game. He tried to come back in games in in. Uh, I remember in uh, in the game we won in overtime in uh, in uh, Tampa, and uh, but it might have been later. I'm not sure now. I'd have to think uh, back and recollect but but that line with donovan uh billy neiman and, and marcus nielsen were the line that was making the difference right for us in uh in uh, the first game and then uh they were dominant in the first game and uh, uh the second game i think it was near the first end of the first game they we lost nielsen for for a game because of a high hit by andre Waugh. and then uh and then we lost sean when uh, Jason Cullimore fell on his leg and, and uh, tore his MCL. And I know game seven, Donald tried to come back and it was no good. And I, I remember that distinctly, but that I thought losing that, that combination of that line really hurt us because then we had to, then we had to reconstruct our lines and it wasn't, and, and it wasn't as good as uh, what we had going. Um, you know, we had um, at the time I, I, Dave, Dave Lowry came into the equation and played more, than he had played uh, during that series, uh, and he did a great job. But you know, it, it didn't make up for the loss of that um, loss of, of Dono and uh, the chemistry of those three. And they were really making a difference, I thought, for uh, you know, on the third line, so, they had speed and and uh, and determination and, and a lot of uh, grit. You just you just jogged my memory. Tell tell the story about Dave Lowry um, and coming back in the Detroit series. Because I don't, I mean, he, we knew he, at the time we knew he'd become a great coach and obviously we were right, but he was coaching. Daryl put him on the bench, right? Yeah. We, yeah. He did put him on the bench at the end of the bench. And, and that was true. Yeah, for sure. He did. I think that was in the, uh, in the San Jose series. And then he, uh, and then, uh, but in, uh, he wasn't playing and we needed to play in Detroit and we couldn't find him uh, the day. Of, I think, uh, it was the, uh, Daryl had called Kelly Chesla and told Kelly to get a hold of uh, Dave Lowry and tell him he was playing, and uh, and Dave didn't believe him. And at the time, 
at that I remember in that series we would stayed uh we stayed at a couple different places but they had a, we I think the one place we did stay for uh one trip down there was in the was where the casinos at in Detroit and David uh, stopped off to uh he wasn't playing he stopped off to uh, play some uh <laughs> um slot machines or something and he, he didn't believe Kelly when Kelly called him up he, Kelly says hey you got to come you have to come you know you you know, I think you're going to play. So, uh, no, I'm not coming. I'm, I'm staying here to play in the slot machines. So, anyways, he did come and he he did play. And then, um, and then you're right. He was uh, he was uh, at the end of the bench, uh, and that was that made me think of something else because uh, when he played in San Jose with Daryl, and the odd occasion he'd get sent down to the end of the bench, and Daryl always used to say. Uh, yeah, go down to the end of the bench and play cards with the other with the other guys down there. <laughs> send them down there to to play cards. So tell me, funny. I I want you to tell me if this is a true story. So it, it's taken on a little bit of a mythology to itself, but essentially the story goes: the first game in Vancouver of the playoffs, Daryl didn't do a lot, didn't say a lot, just let the team go out and play the game. They, you guys lost that first game in Vancouver. Everybody came in, and it was something to the effect of Daryl just looked at everybody and said, okay, you got your attention. Let's get going. This is what we're going to do game two. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but is that the what happened there? You know, he was uh, – the, the the great thing about Daryl that I – and, I, and I, I put him up there with some of the greatest coaches in the world is that he, he could really simplify a message – and he, he would always be bang on with what the message was. And uh, he did say uh, something along those lines. Uh, he got their attention. And and the way you get players' attention is you, you have to make them think about what it is that, that a person is saying. And you, you can't sugarcoat it with a lot of, uh, you know, dialogue. Uh, everybody's used to short, to-the-point information and direct directness and uh we could do a whole new a whole nother uh, <laughs> uh podcast on daryl oh uh, yeah there's, <laughs> there's one there <laughs> but uh you know i i can recall the messages that he gave throughout the course of the playoffs in 2004 and and i i, I don't have it with me because i'm in self-isolation and uh, but i have I, I took a lot of notes during the course of that year just on uh, on messages that he provided, and uh, and you know we always I always look back at them and uh, and and uh, and and actually I've used a few of them you know uh, with my coaching approach uh, you know in later years and in my communication approach and uh, he had another one in Detroit we won the game uh, in Detroit. Uh, uh, I think it was the game we won uh, one nothing down there. We won the last two games one nothing. Is that correct? Yep. Marty scored the winning goal and back in game six, and we won the game down there. And his first message to the players after um, the game was over, he he was you know everybody's excited and and uh, you know feeling good about themselves. And his 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 one message was, "Hey, you haven't done anything yet. Don't even think you've done anything." have you know to 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 make yourself uh you know a championship team and and that really struck home because that message there like it just snapped the players right to attention 
and they and and it was back to the business of of winning the series and uh and and, and his delivery and his way and and the purposefulness of of what the message was 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 really good and um and I, and I really appreciated how he could do that on a day-to-day basis. You know, he's a very uh, he's a deep thinker as far as a coach, uh, and the message is is there. And uh, as far as the players are concerned, you know, you just had to play you had to play hard all the time and be a good teammate. And if you're a good teammate, usually you know you stayed in his good books. What was your role, Rob? Because to me, that was the first time I'd ever spent a, a lot of time around an NHL staff. David Marcou was a little bit of a, at that time, a little bit of a novelty, a full-time goaltending coach. Not all the teams had that. Jimmy Playfair had been a, a head coach in the American Hockey League, was working with the defenseman. Rico, Rich Preston, had been a head coach in other levels and had been a long-time assistant with Daryl. You were there as, as the video guy. What? What? But that's... You know, that's your title, video guy. You did more than that. You were on the ice for practice. What was your role within the structure of that coaching staff? Well, like, so you, you basically described our, our our roles and responsibilities. And and with with Daryl, I mean, his 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 idea of a, of a basic job description for each of us was very simple. Uh, my role when I first met him. He, he was very specific. He just said, you know what? Your job is to get the team prepared to play, to get the uh, pre-scout done, and to, to make sure you're continually giving them feedback as to how they've played. And uh, I didn't have a direct role on the bench at the time. And uh, so I was uh, I fed the information to, uh, to Rich Usley and to, uh, and, and to Jimmy. Uh, uh, but a lot of my role was you know, to go through the game after the fact and uh, pull out the information that we could teach with. And uh, during the playoffs, obviously, it's a lot of reinforcement uh, with respect to what our, our approach was to play the team we were playing. And uh, also, you know, obviously to prepare for the uh, the next opponent that we we're going to play for. So that was, uh, in a nutshell, that would have been my responsibility. And then I worked a lot with the forwards at the time. Uh and uh you know in practice and after practice and uh and uh and then you know as part of my role with video jimmy and i worked a lot together uh you know he was the lead hand in in terms of the penalty killing and uh so we worked together on that and i learned a lot from jimmy at that time and just in in his approach as uh you know with defensemen and how he taught defensemen and and what he did to uh you know, to chunk down the game for them. And, and uh, he was invaluable in terms of my uh, development in that aspect of it. And so, you know, all of that combined, you know, really made for an easy job for me. I, I would do my work and, uh, you know, and you always had to have the, uh, they always have to, had to be aware of, uh, of Daryl and his, and uh, what his, his mindset was and how he kept the players on edge. I recall a couple times where he challenged me in, in my video meetings and uh, I think, you know, I think a lar- uh, to a large part it was to snap the players to attention and to hold us accountable in some respects. And, you know, you have to be ready for that uh, with Daryl and you have to have a thick skin. And, uh, and, if you, and, if you can, and if you can do that, I, you have a wonderful relationship and a working relationship with them. And I, I enjoyed working with them. 
how, how much were you able to enjoy what was going on in the city at the time? You guys worked, you know, tons of hours, slept very little, but how conscious yeah. were you aware of the Red Mile and how Canada and everybody else was really kind of forming a line behind this team as it went on? You're really, uh, as a coaching staff, to some respects, you're really in a bubble uh, during the course of those playoffs. And uh, you're right, you don't probably enjoy uh, what's happening around the city uh, or if at that time it was, you know, when a Canadian team gets to the finals, it's a, it's usually a celebration of the, the country, um, you know, because to put a, you know, to be honest with you, there's not many teams now, there hasn't been a Canadian team uh, on a consistent basis that have got to the finals. Uh, so I didn't get a lot of uh, opportunity to experience the red mile. I don't think I was there once, but I, you know, you listen to a lot of, um, a lot of your friends and a lot of your relatives who, who take on, you know, the excitement uh, of the event and you hear a lot from them. And, and, you know, we, at the, I know we stayed, uh, uh, we used to have some meetings down at the Eau Claire uh, when we got to the, uh, into the finals uh, or even to the semifinals. Uh, some of the players stayed down at the Eau Claire and, and we had some meetings down there. And that was the first time I really saw the hype of the city because it was so, you know, it was, the summer and, and the weather or springtime and the weather was great and the people were out and about and, and a lot of, uh, you know, flames, uh, jerseys were on. And, uh, so it was really fantastic in that respect, but like you, uh, you, you we didn't get a lot of opportunity. I don't know what you got. No, uh, I, you uh, had late shows yeah. after the fact. Yeah. No, I didn't see much of it either, but, um, but I knew because I was getting, phone calls from seattle or, <laughs> or boston hey can you come on we're seeing it's quite a party in Cal i got one from australia like really he, yeah because the red mile was just this thing that took off right yeah uh, it was organic it wasn't planned it it, it certainly no. got out of hand at some points and all those sort of things but um you you know it taught me about sport rob that you know, it's easy to sit back and play armchair quarterback and go, oh, no, no, you shouldn't go for it. You shouldn't, you know, you should build and do this. And so. It's so difficult to win. It is so yeah. difficult to, to win. And if you ever get a chance, you go for it and you throw everything. And I, for what it's worth, I really believe Daryl threw everything into the pot that he could. He didn't have a lot of draft picks. He didn't have a lot of prospects. But he went out and reshaped that that dressing room as best he could. And he, he went for it. The team went for it. And yeah, it, it's kind of not the same when you lose in the second round or you get knocked out in the first round. No. And I, you know, those, uh, that it just goes to show you what the, the right formula takes. And, uh, you know, when you, when you think about, uh, after that, you know, we had the lockout for the full year and then we came back and, and the next two years we had really good teams and, uh, and we had, uh, we had great seasons and we, uh, in fact, even uh, even the year that uh, Jimmy was the head coach, yep. we had we had a great team and we had a great year. We had uh, as a first year coach, we had we had over ninety six points, and uh, and all three years there were really good teams. But they, you know, it just goes to show you how fine the uh, the line is in the playoffs. You know, you know, once you get in, you have a chance to win. It doesn't matter where you finish; you have a chance to win, and. Uh, and and that's the that's the magical formula. You just have to get in, 
and you look at uh, even even last year with St. Louis. Yep. I mean, early January they weren't they nobody gave them a chance of making the playoffs, even making the playoffs. But once you get in, you have a chance, and it just takes it just takes the determination of the group, and the closeness of the group, and uh, and the right uh, you know to create the right bounces. And uh, that year we uh, you know had some magical performances from Marty. Uh, Shalina, we had some uh, performances from uh, Mika Kippersoff. We had great uh, defensive uh, contributions from from our defense corps, from uh, Andrew Ferentz, Robin Regeer, Rhett Warner, um, Jordan Leopold, and then the and then the Commodore uh, Monador group, and then uh, Lidman came back in, and then uh, everybody contributed, and and the closeness of the group and the leadership of the group that really held everything together. Uh, that was so critical, and you know nowadays it's it's tougher because the group changes so much on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Even when we when we came back after the lockout, the group had changed dramatically. If you look at uh, the players that we had in the ensuing years, when we when we had great teams, it was a totally different team, and it, but it still had the core group, and uh, but it was different. So. It was a special time. It was a, a special time. Um, I'm I'm curious though, you, you know, just to kind of head in a final direction for someone like yourself. And I think of our friend Wayne Fleming, who we lost a, a couple of years ago, and you know Jimmy and and even Rico and the the life of a coach, the the nomadic life of a coach. Uh, f- for you, you know, you you were an eye in the sky. You were a video coach. But you want to be on the bench. You want to be where the action is. And, and you worked your way to that. And I know Wayne Fleming left a, an NHL job as an assistant because he wanted to be a head coach. And Jimmy went to the American Hockey League because he wanted to be a head coach. For someone on the outside who, who doesn't go through that, can you kind of explain what it is about you know, the profession that you, know, you guys sometimes take paths, make decisions that we on the outside might look and go, well, why are you doing that? But... You know, you guys really do a lot of things to get to where you want to go in your profession. Yeah, well, you, you know what? It it is a difficult, uh, it is a difficult uh, uh, profession uh, because a lot of times you may not have control of your profession as as much as you might think you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into it. But I will say that um, that uh, in order to coach and, and to be a true coach in a profession such as hockey, you have to know that you got to move and you have to move for the purpose of, uh, of uh, obviously for jobs. If you need a job and you, and you need an opportunity, uh, you have to, you have to take those opportunities. Um, but you, you know, if you're going to, you know, I, I feel envious of uh, um, some, some players who get into coaching right away and, and they, are able to stay in one location for a long period of time. But I sometimes wonder if, um, you know, coaches that have finished up their career in one city and then gone right into coaching and stayed in that, that same city, uh, you know, if they're able to, uh, if, if they would really find coaching in their blood, if they had to move three or four times like they did as players, right. Once they get settled into their, uh, you know, to their cities and and their families and their and their kids are all in school, so it's not that easy of a profession. And and you sometimes wonder if they are really, they want that profession, 
if they have to move. Like I had to, um, you know, to be honest with you, when I was uh, by the year I left Calgary, and the next year I coached at the University of Calgary, and it was it was a great opportunity for me at the time because I I wanted to get back and get bench experience. Yep. And so that gave me the the year of bench experience, and then uh, obviously the reason I went to to uh, to Switzerland was was to work, but also to acquire bench experience. So I knew that uh, at the time, um, I needed that if I was going to stay in this uh, in this uh, profession and, and continue to work my way up. And I remember probably one thing that probably uh, I probably should have taken uh, as far as an opportunity was was the year that Jim went to uh, Jimmy went to uh, Abbotsford to coach. He had asked me to go along with him, and uh, at the time I I probably wasn't ready to do that. It turned out better, but in retrospect, it may have been it may have been my opportunity to uh, to to get more bench experience uh, earlier. Um, so you move around; it's not that easy. In fact, I was just thinking about that the other day. I've been I was in Switzerland for four years, in Ottawa for three years, uh, at home for a bit, then to Switzerland for another year. So that's uh, that's eight years. And I, I haven't been in Calgary now for eight winters. And uh, so every, every, you know, that's how quickly it goes by. So every year you, um, every year you move around and, uh, and uh, every year I, I spent six months away from my, my wife. And uh, so, you know, you have to make some, there's large sacrifices in this, in this profession as they are in a lot of professions, but I think more in coaching because, you know, coaching, once it gets into your system, it's hard to get out. And, uh, you know, I still chase the, uh, to be honest with you, I, I think about this lot, a lot. I still chase the opportunity to win a, a Stanley Cup. And that's, I think, um, you know, what pushes you to be back in the National Hockey League. And it pushes you to, uh, you know, I really, you know, we won the Swiss Championship, um, Mark and myself. And we had a, a great run in Ottawa our first year. You know, we we took the Stanley Cup championships to double overtime and then lost, and that was a heartbreaking uh, season there, or a heartbreaking loss, anyways. And and uh, after a great run, and then we had two disappointing years in Ottawa, which you know were were a result of the team, the focus and the identity and the and the direction of the team changes changed dramatically. And uh, so there you go, you. You know, you look at opportunities to have success, opportunities to win, opportunities to uh, develop players, and um, opportunities, uh, you know, to to show that you can you can uh, be part of a group that's uh, successful. Are you still passionate about it, Rob, or are you? Is it what you do? And by that, and I'm not trying to, you know, suggest one is greater than the other, but. You know, when we're young and full, and we want to take on the world, we have this this passion, and and we'll chase the dream. But then, if it's it's what you do, and you know nothing else, you keep moving forward, and you want to get better. Which is it for you at this at this point? I'm still passionate about winning. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I I often I you know what Mike Keenan used to he always used to have a a comment. He said, and it was so it's so true in our profession and and sometimes you can't get away from it there's winning and there's misery and i love to win 
and um, and I hate to lose. And sometimes it becomes personal against against the other, you know, the, maybe the coach coaching staff of the other team. Maybe that's our uh, our uh, our competitive part as coaches. But our, uh, you know, you you spend a lot of time preparing your team to play a game. Uh, you know that the lightning less of you winning every game in the regular season is not is not going to happen. It never happens. But you want your team to be competitive uh, as much. Uh, as they can be every game taking into account the schedule uh, that goes on. And um, so, you know, that's what drives me, you know, it drives me to, you know, and it's hard to tell players that their careers, their careers are very short. The window of opportunity to win, you know, like we talked about earlier, it has to happen now when they have the chance. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think when management is on board with that and, um, and the, um, and the coaching staff is on board with that. I think that you can have some some real magical uh, uh, situations. And so, um, when you look at uh, you know you look around the National Hockey League, for example, and you look at uh, you look at GMs, and uh, when opportunity promotes itself, then you got to go for it. And uh, and sometimes you understand what they're doing as far as managers, but lots of times you see, you know, I can recall a few experiences later in my career in Calgary where I thought we could have made a move that would have really pushed us over the edge and it, and it didn't happen. And, uh, and, um, but you know, those are things that you learn through experience and, and the players learn and, uh, you move forward. But, um, passion is really important when you coach and, uh, you have to have that and you have to show that to the players every day. And the work ethic is, uh, I don't think that I work, uh, any less than I did when I was younger. It's a, it's a hard, it's a hard career as other careers are to not work hard and have success. So that, you gotta it's, it's, no, no, that's, it's great. You know, it, it's your point about passion and it, it, it doesn't mean matter if you're a coach, a player, administrator, broadcaster, whatever you're yeah. involved in, in sport, you, you, you know, there's the old line, I don't know who made it popular, but somebody, you know, make it or fake it till you make it. There's yeah. other things. You can get other people to do the work. You can get other, you know, you can kind of, but you can't fake passion. And and no. players know it. Everybody knows it. It, it, it's, it exposes you right away if you don't have it. Yeah. Yeah, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. And, I, you know, I worked with Mark for four years in, uh, in, uh, in Switzerland. And, uh, you know, he, he's a, he's a, a great friend of mine and, but he's a, he's a really passionate coach and, uh, and he, his strength is his, uh, what he brings as far as passion to the team, as far as energy and, and, uh, and, um, um, and Daryl was, uh, you know, is a very passionate coach and, uh, you know, so I've had some great opportunities to work with some great coaches over the years and that's what's, and that's what's driven me as well in right. terms of you know, I want to have success and you want to put yourself in a, in a position to have success with the best people and, and the best, um, you know, organization and, and that sort of thing. So you keep pushing and you keep working to, to find those opportunities. Last one for you. And it has nothing to do with hockey. It has nothing to do with coaching. It's the question that we've been asking all of our guests right at the end. And I'm not going to put any parameters on it. I'm just going to ask you the question. You answer it how you feel you want to answer it. But give me your hidden Calgary gem. 
We're trying to compile when this is all over and we're back to normal. We want to give some people some things to get excited about or to try or to go or whatever. So, Rob Cookson, give me your hidden Calgary gem. The hidden Calgary gem in uh, Canada or the world is the energy that the people bring to the city. These, uh, you know, the uh, the attitude and the... Uh, the spirit that comes with the city is phenomenal. Um, if you look at uh, the events every year that uh, that bring the best out of people, the Calgary Stampede, uh, the the various uh, small area activities around the city in the in the outlying areas, the Beltline areas, are phenomenal. But the energy that the that the city brings every day with its people, and I think that. Um, you know, I think that uh, once this uh, little hiccup is over with respect to the uh, the virus right now, the city will roar back, and I truly believe that it'll become this become what it was a few years ago. It's had a little bit of a, a downturn, obviously because of the economy, but the people are still have great spirits, and they have great passion as far as being Calgarians and Albertans. So I think that that's the hidden gem that, uh, that you should look for when you come into the city. Awesome stuff. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for taking some time. Hey, how long did we go? Uh, we are without intro and extra, just body right now. We are uh, buck seventeen. Is that good? I think it's fantastic. You know me. I was always constrained by the uh, the time limitations of radio, so this is my medium. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I could spend all day, and we might do this again. We might another guy with lots of stories and lots of opinions, and I love them all. Rob Cookson, um, you might you know the name, you might know the face, uh, you certainly know the voice because he's been a contributor on uh, the local sports talk station here in town. Like I can't say it, sports that nine sixty the fan. He's been uh, a contributor there and a guy you probably heard. But uh, great story and uh, neat perspectives and exactly what we're looking for on these original six feet conversation podcast. If you haven't uh, checked this out before, if this is your first one, make sure you go back to sportcalgary.ca to the podcast section and, and take a look at the laundry list of people we've had on. Randy Chevrier, uh, Katrina LeMay Doan, Cassie Campbell-Pascal, Erica Weeb, George Canyon, Trent McClellan, just to name a few. And we've got more in the hopper coming, which is going to be really, really, really exciting, I think, for everybody. Uh, the whole intention of this podcast series is to tell some stories, have some fun, touch on a few topics, get caught up on the news of the day, so to speak. Uh, and, and we did that in this kind of, I mean, Rob was there when they played games with no uh, crowds. And, and remember, that's one of the alternatives they were looking here before everything got shut down. And who knows, maybe we're going to see some of that when we come out of it. I don't know. But uh, that's what we're trying to do, tell some of those Calgary stories. If you liked it, tell a friend. Um, hopefully you're downloading it from iTunes or Spotify or the, or the Sport Calgary website. Really, uh, really enjoying the feedback we're getting. Thank you for the positive support. Uh, I'm Rob Kerr. You know who you are. This has been Original Six Feet uh, Conversation Podcast for Sport Calgary.